0: Tune into radical philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Pierce Alley, and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. Hi, yeah, my name is Vanessa Lem. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of New South Wales and Right, and you listen to Radical Philosophy on the three C R community radio. (laughs) From now on (laughs) Yes. Empathy. She did not talk to people as if they were strange hard shells she had to crack open to get inside. She talked as if they were she was already in the shell in their very shell. Martine Bonner, Nothing New, 1926. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And if you're not able to listen live on a Thursday afternoon between 3.30 and 4 o'clock, don't despair. You can access previous podcasts on 3 CR community radio's website just google radical philosophy 3cr and when you get onto the website page you can also access there's a link there to access the facebook account and you don't need to be on facebook yourself but you can listen to all the previous podcasts And I'm speaking to Professor Jeanette Kennett from Macquarie University. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Now, what is your definition of empathy?
1: Well, I don't have a definition of empathy, and I don't think that... It's very clear what people mean. People think they know what they mean when they're talking about empathy, but in fact, they often mean a lot of different things. I think that probably what most people mean by empathy, uh, its most common meaning is sharing another person's feelings. So feeling what the other person feels, getting into their shoes, as it were, at an affective level. I think that that's what most people mean by it, but... They often go on to sort of infuse it with a sort of a moral dimension and they seem to think that just by virtue of sharing an emotion with somebody you'll come to act in a, in a better way, that you'll be more helpful or sympathetic or generous or whatever.
0: So what was it that inspired you to study empathy?
1: Well, I do moral philosophy. That's that's my area. And so I'm really interested in questions of moral motivation, what motivates people to act in morally good ways. And in philosophy, there's a very long standing debate between rationalists on the one hand and sentimentalists on the other about what the foundations of uh, our moral understanding and moral motivation is. So sentimentalists following Hume say that morality is based in the emotion and rationalists say that morality, that reason is an integral part of morality and that reason is what makes us human, what separates us from the animals and that to be a moral individual you have to be capable of rational deliberation. So there's that debate in the background and a lot of people on the sentimentalist side of the debate, have pointed out that emotions have to be central because we went, when we look at people who lack certain sorts of emotional responsiveness to others, that is, and they they point to people who are psychopaths. Uh, they say, "Well, look, psychopaths are a really good example of an amoral individual, a person who doesn't behave very well and doesn't really care." and But what explains the amoralism of the psychopath is their lack of empathy. So empathy must be key to morality. So sentimentalism wins over rationalism. Now, I guess back in around 2000, I had been reading some stuff on autism and One of, in in the old DSM-3, which I was looking at about that time, one of the diagnostic criteria for autism was deficiencies in empathy. And I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because autistic people are supposed to be deficient in empathy, but they're certainly not psychopaths and they're certainly not amoralists. And from the sort of reading of I'd been doing, you know, reading about Temple Grandin and reading about autistic children, it seemed as though a lot of autistic people have got a very strong moral sense that they do possess a conscience. And yet, so here were these two groups of people, both of whom were supposed to lack empathy as one of the diagnostic criteria, but it looked like one of the groups was amoral and the other group wasn't. So I started... That was when I got interested in thinking about it and thinking more carefully about the kind of role that empathy might play in morality and what else might need to be involved.
0: Now, there's a term, one death is a tragedy, one million is a statistic. What is meant by that?
1: I think that it's meant to point out that we have a problem as people processing big numbers so we find it easy to identify with one other person Uh, and if we're told the story of a particular person and the terrible things that have happened then we can sympathize with them but if you hear about a million deaths well because there's so many they, they become faceless they lose the particularity and so we don't we find it more difficult to care that we seem to need to to have to focus on the particular in order to get those sorts of affective, those emotional responses to suffering going.
0: Yeah, so recently I've noticed within the media there's a tendency to give fundraising campaigns a face by focusing just on one person that's been affected and naming them and giving certain particulars about their personality or their life. So. Would that be the same thing as you were saying? that Once people sort of feel they, they know this person or have some sort of a connection with them, they're more likely to increase the amount of empathy they have?
1: Well, certainly I think that a lot of charities try to elicit empathy and they must think, and presumably they've got some evidence, that if they can work by eliciting empathy that they will increase the amount of funds that they raise so you know you've got charities like world vision who ask you to sponsor a particular child and you get a little history of that child and you'll get letters from that child and they encourage you to build a personal connection with that child i mean i don't know how personal the connection is i'm sure in some cases it does become that connection but of course the other thing they make clear is that the money goes to the community it doesn't actually go just to that particular child so the child's kind of the face of the community and the child benefits because the money is going to the community i i understand why charities do this because they do need to raise money and they do need to get people to think about the needs of the people that they're trying to benefit i just i guess i think it's a bit of a shame that People seem to need to have this story told before they're willing to help other people. Why isn't it enough to know that there are a lot of people living in very deprived circumstances whom you could easily help? Why do we have to have the little child tugging at the heartstrings? Um, you know, I, it seems to be a fact about a lot of people that they need that, but it, I don't think it's true of everybody. I think that. There are people who, if you just tell them that this donation will save this many lives or whatever, that's that's enough. The facts will do the talking. They don't need the personal story. But maybe it's a feature of our culture at the moment. I mean, if you look at reality television, to be honest, it drives me crazy if I want to watch a cooking show, I, I want to. I want to watch the food. I, I don't want people's personal journeys and dramas and so forth. But so I don't watch those shows anymore because there's no cooking in them,
0: or not enough. Oh, no, I, I agree. Everybody's speaking about that cooking show, and it it drives me a bit crazy, actually. And people get so emotionally entangled in it. it it's like as if they they know the people and it's like oh I I was really thinking that one would go to the end and now they haven't and I think well you haven't mentioned anything about the food at all (laughs) you just sort of the way they're relating to the to the characters on the show
1: that's right so I think I tend to think that our culture is overselling emotion and overselling this sort of fake emotional connection I'm sure a lot of people would say that that's not genuine empathy, but it is partaking vicariously of other people's emotions. I guess what I would say is that to the extent that we're being encouraged to vicariously partake of other people's emotions in all of these reality television shows, that's kind of good evidence for me that there's no real necessary connection between empathizing with somebody and behaving well, because it seems to me that we're vicariously partaking of a lot of very mean and nasty emotions as well. It's not all sweetness and light when we partake of other people's emotions. So I I think that this is a capacity that we have, and it's a capacity that might be important in various ways to morality, but it doesn't have... A close connection with morality that some people claim, because in and of itself, just sharing somebody else 's emotion is a morally neutral thing it, feeling sad when they feel sad or happy or angry or jealous or whatever it is that you might be feeling what 's the moral upshot of that? well we don 't know yet, do we Not just we don 't know just from the fact that you 've shared somebody somebody 's emotions that your actions are going to be any better.
0: Mm, No, that's right. And I heard one of the charities uh, was speaking about when they were presenting the the faces of of children and, you know, the amount of uh, money that people were donating and they said that once they actually had white children on there appealing to white people, they got an enormous response. So do you think that cultural factors affect empathy?
1: They certainly do. There's, I think, quite a lot of evidence that empathy is very parochial, if you like, that it's easy for us to feel empathetic towards our in-group, to identify with our in-group, with people like us. They're the people we most readily and easily feel empathy towards and want to help. But if somebody is different, culturally different, visibly different by Perhaps religious attire or have a different skin colour or even class differences, people who dress very differently, talk differently to us. the empathy empathy doesn't our empathy doesn't readily extend to those people. I mean there have been interesting experiments done on people's responses to art groups, including to homeless people who who surely terribly disadvantaged but it looks from testing people's brain waves and so forth that a lot of people don't even respond to homeless people as human beings uh, and that's rather shocking so and these are people and we're not talking about people here who are psychopaths we're not talking about that we're talking about people who would be utterly empathetic to people to others within their sort of cohort or group So it's not that they're incapable of empathy, that they've got a deficit in the way that the psychopath has. These are ordinary people, but ordinary people tend to not be terribly empathetic to people who are not like them.
0: Yes, I think that the media has has a lot to answer for. And it's the way that homeless people are portrayed in the media, especially with the political climate at the moment. We talk about the the lifters and the leaners and you know, about people who are on welfare. But, I mean, the, the biggest welfare recipient there is, is, is Murdoch, who received an $886 million tax refund uh, but people don't look at it from that angle, do they? I mean, he's receiving corporate welfare and it's a massive amount of welfare. When you, when you think of that amount of money and it could actually be getting just about every homeless people off the street and, and into housing. Uh, do you think that the yeah. media has quite a bit to do with shaping well, people's views?
1: Well, I certainly think the media has... Uh, plays a role in in shaping people's views but i think that there are various ways that they do it they can do it in by choosing certain things as being worthy of debate and other things as not being so worthy of debate that's one of the ways that they do it and the other way is really a kind of a bread and circuses trick so get us all interested in stuff that actually doesn't matter like some cooking show and Who's, who's going to be kicked off the show and who's not, celebrity gossip, things like that, so that we get very caught up in the lives of people that we'll never meet. And it, it's reducing everything to, the, to, to something sort of very kind of personal or interpersonal so that we don't get to see the structural features of our society that uh, can perpetuate injustice. So I, I think... As a society, we're probably too focused on the personal, too focused on the emotional, and less focused on the bigger picture and the structure. You know, so we we literally can't see the wood for the trees. I think that's a problem. Now, you know, a lot of people will say, well, the answer to this is not less empathy but more empathy. We should extend our empathy to disfavoured groups, the homeless, the migrants, and so forth. But I guess I tend to think that these are matters that have to be dealt with, not just at the personal level, but at the structural level, at the level of justice, and so not at the level of sort of feeling sorry for people who are having a rough time. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel sorry for people who are having a rough time, but I think we can exhaust ourselves very quickly that way because so many people are having a rough time and if we have to kind of identify with each of them separately and share their sufferings, we're going to burn out. And morally speaking, I think that we need perhaps to take, at these, with these big issues, to take a sort of a more impartial and justice-based approach to...
0: Yes, I think a lot of the politicians have weapons of mass distraction and it's distracting people from the the real issues and there there is more than two parties running in the election as well, which people don't seem to realise either. Now, is there any connection between empathy and morality?
1: Well, I think there is a connection, but I think it's the nature of the connection... That needs to be teased out. Uh, There is a hypothesis that's called the empathy-altruism hypothesis that posits a pretty direct connection between empathy and altruism. If you increase empathy, you're supposed to increase altruistic behaviour. And that I'm not so sure is true. The idea is that empathy is going to dissolve the boundaries between one person and another. So it's going to make it harder to be indifferent to another person's needs. Now, there is something quite plausible about that. But I think that because of this in-group, out-group thing, it's not very reliable it will work sort of within your group to increase morally good behavior, to increase helping behavior. But when you go outside the boundaries of the group, it doesn't work. So there's, a, and there are a few other moral roles for en- empathy. It might be seen, it's often seen as a sort of an epistemic tool. So it's it gives you knowledge of another person's situation by empathizing with another person, by trying to put yourself in their shoes, by seeing how it is from their point of view. You get some information that's morally important uh, when you're deciding what to do. So it's got that epistemic tool and it's also supposed to be motivating. So if I feel sorry for you, I'm more likely to be motivated to do something to help you than if I don't feel sorry for you. And I think also it's seen as a part of what a virtuous person is like, that a virtuous person will be empathetic towards other people, will be able to take up other people's point of view and take their needs and their feelings into account. So all of these roles have been suggested for empathy, and I think that empathy is partially successful in doing these things that are claimed for it. But I do think that it is very limited by this in-group, out-group boundary, as it were. It seems to kind of stop at that boundary for a lot of people, maybe most people.
0: What part do you think that nature and nurture play in people's levels of empathy
1: well, <laughs> that that is that is a question, isn't it? I think there's evidence that situation plays quite a lot, quite a big role because the evidence that I've been reading lately suggests that people, as they get richer and more powerful, become less and less empathetic. So that would suggest that these people who... it's not not likely that there's a sort of a natural difference, as it were, between the rich and the poor. It looks as though if you're placed into a privileged situation, you will lose your sense perhaps of what it is like to be struggling, and you will think, maybe you'll be more inclined to think that people who are poor deserve it, that they've achieve their right station in life and that they shouldn't expect any help from you whereas if you are poor you're more likely to give a helping hand to others in need Perhaps also because you know you know you're going to need a helping hand yourself whereas if you're rich you might think that you don't need other people
0: mm, yeah, that's you'd right. be wrong
1: but you know yeah. you might
0: think that <laughs> well you don't need other people to assist you basically in...
1: well yeah uh, you know money does buy quite a lot of stuff that's true, so yeah, I think there's pretty good evidence that in a normal distribution of sort of natural characteristics that the situation that a person's placed into can play a big role in how much empathy they display, but there would be of course natural differences as well and it looks as though developmental psychopaths might be people who are naturally deficient in empath- empathetic feeling or in. because they seem to be deficient in their understanding of some of the negative emotions like fear. And without that understanding, it looks as though they don't develop empathetic responses to other people's suffering.
0: So, what is the difference between effective empathy and cognitive empathy
1: okay so there are in the in the literature there are two ways or, or two sorts of cognitive processes I suppose which um, allow us to understand other people and affective empathy refers to that process by which we sort of catch the other person's emotion and feel what the other person feels. And if you think, it's a good thing to think about little babies, infants here. Think about what happens if you make a big smiley face at an infant, you know, and you're a caregiver so the infant knows you, you're not a creepy stranger or anything. (laughs) Then, you know, that that little one is going to break into a big, big smile. If you make a frowny face, it'll frown, and if you keep frowning, its frowny face will eventually crumple and, and the baby will cry, okay? So what it's doing is, and this is an automatic process, is, is it's imitating the facial expressions it sees displayed. And in doing the imitation, it comes to feel the emotion. So by copying each other, and we do this all the time, we respond to other people's facial expressions with our own faces so we respond to smiles with smiles and frowns with frowns and in doing so we come to feel some of the emotion of the other person and that's you know one of the prime mechanisms for emotional contagion how we catch emotions from the other person and feel what they feel then there's sort of emotional reactivity which is responding to another person's emotion so if you're making a very angry face i might not respond with an angry face i might react with fear okay (laughs) so there's a certainly something going on i know what it is you're feeling it's anger and i'm responding to that and if you were if you were very distressed about something i might feel pity for you i might not feel exactly the same distress as you feel now all of these things Get put under the sort of rubric of emotion, of affective empathy, and there's also the sort of projection. You know, you might imagine how you would, how you yourself would feel if you were in their circumstances. So, if you see somebody grieving over a lost relative, you think, "Oh, you know, how would I feel if so and so died?" And you might start feeling very miserable yourself. You might start feeling something of the emotion that you would feel in those circumstances. So that's all on the affective side, but where we don't just sort of get emotions from other people. We have also have an interest in knowing what they think. Okay, what they believe and what they're what they're planning to do. So that's on the side of cognitive empathy and it often gets called perspective taking. So what we learn as we develop is that other people don't have the same beliefs and feelings and intentions that we do. So, you know, uh, we, we learn that I like chocolate ice cream, but that doesn't mean that so-and-so, that the Billy over there likes chocolate ice cream. Billy likes strawberry ice cream. And one of the earliest tests that they give to young children is the false belief task where they, because children tend to think that everybody believes what they believe. So if if they know the toy is in the box, then they think that the other person knows the toy is in the box, even if the other person hasn't seen the toy go in the box. So when they can pass a false belief test, that's when they have learnt that other people's beliefs are different and are based on what the other person knows, not on what the child knows, OK? So you you have to... It's quite a cognitive achievement realising that other people's mental state is different to your, to your own. But we cross that hurdle and we all come to understand that other people have beliefs and desires based on their own experiences so cognitive perspective taking is, involves that recognition and involves our beliefs about other people's beliefs and that also can involve projection into the other person's situation what would I believe if I were in those circumstances what would I decide to do what would I want if I were in those circumstances and we need to be able to do this because we need to be able to sort of predict other people. It's really important just for getting around the world, really, being able to form expectations about what other people are going to do, and that's cognitive empathy. And so which one is important for morality? Most people in the empathy literature really talking about the connection between empathy and morality seem to be talking more about affective empathy but it looks like you couldn't get away without having this perspective taking capacity as well.
0: well that's right now it's a very interesting topic so thank you very much for coming onto the program today. You're welcome. And I've been speaking to Professor Jeanette Kennett from Macquarie University speaking about empathy. This is Jo Nessel speaking on and for radical philosophy At 3CR, I can remember speaking early when I first arrived uh, to Melbourne at a program called the Women's Shed, and that was my introduction to the wonders of community radio, which are more important in the world now than ever. And thanks very much for that, Joan. And also, thank you very much uh, to our interviewee, Professor Jeanette Kennett for speaking about empathy. So, hope you've enjoyed the program today and you've found it interesting, and you've been given plenty of food for thought.